Pastor Levi, you often combine history or science with your sermons, and in your newest book, Last Supper on the Moon, you take us into space and kind of also into inner space. What what got you thinking about doing this theme for a book? Well, it is just a thoroughly biblical concept, you know, to to look to David in Psalm 8, who said, When I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, the sun, the moon, the stars, what is man that you are mindful of him? So it's it's human nature to look up and go, wow, look at all that. Look at the shooting star. Look at the Milky Way. Look at the Aurora Borealis. And then naturally to say, who am I? What what Where's my place in this universe? And then, of course, in Jesus, we have an answer because the next thing he says is, who is the son of man that you would visit him? And that word visit speaks to the incarnation. So I'm just so grateful that we don't have to guess where our place is, and we don't have to ask what's going to happen to us when we die, because Jesus has given his life for us. And so, you know, it's amazing that man left earth and went to the moon, but even better is that the Son of God left heaven and came to this earth. And so there's a natural bridge, and I love that it just is a natural, um, you know, illustration or metaphor. Uh, the, the whole space race, the moon shot, that, all of that is, is a great metaphor to kind of using new language to explain the gospel. And, of course, in the book, you, you talk a lot about uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. And uh, Armstrong, of course, the first guy to, to walk on the moon. But Aldrin actually took communion on the moon. And I understand this was pre-approved by NASA. Uh, I haven't heard of this in the history books and so forth, but can you share us a little bit about that? Of course. Well, there's actually a really beautiful connection between those who, who flew as astronauts and those who had a faith in, in God. And, you know, on Apollo 8 in 1968, they actually, on Christmas Eve, from the moon, they didn't land, but on Apollo 8, they went to the moon. They broadcasted to the whole world, uh, half a billion people listening or watching, as they read from Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and they signed off, God bless all those of you on on the good earth. And there was an atheist listening named Madeline Murray O'Hare, and she sued NASA, saying that reading the Bible on the airwaves was a a separation of church and state issue. Well, she lost the lawsuit um, because an astronaut is allowed to express himself in his his own personal opinion, and they wanted to read from the Bible for their remarks. And, you know, John Glenn, the first to orbit the Earth, said, I can't believe anybody could go to space and not believe in, in God. And so... NASA did approve Buzz bringing communion elements. He brought wine and, and bread to the moon, uh, but they said, "Hey, we don't we don't want to make a big deal because of the last time when this became a big, you know, lawsuit and a distraction. So do your communion, just don't don't go public on the on the radio about it." So for many years, it was kept quiet that Buzz had, as the first uh, meal ever eaten on the moon, taken communion. It's incredible. And I understand that your new book has actually already gone into space. Can you tell us about that? Oh, yes. Uh, uh, my friend is an astronaut with NASA, and he uh, got selected to go on the new SpaceX rocket that was going to go to the International Space Station. It was his third mission. Uh, Shane Kimbrough is his name. And he called me up and said, hey, I'm going to go to the space station on this rocket. Would you want to send anything to space? I would fly it for you as a, as a you know, if you have anything small. And I said, oh, my gosh, Shane. I just finished today writing this book to try and help people figure out inner space using the metaphor of space exploration and outer space, and would you fly that for me? So he agreed to. We put the the manuscript for the book on a thumb drive, and then I got to go to Cape Canaveral and from the same launch pad that Neil and Buzz and Michael Collins blasted off from, watch my thumb drive in his possession 
launch off to space. And then we video chatted. I got to, he brought it out and showed it to me. And then when he came back home after almost six months there, he gave it back to me. And now it's sitting on my bookshelf over here. What a story. You, uh, you write that the moon makes you marvel about God and even gives you peace to some degree. You touched on that a little bit earlier, but can you share, you know, when, when you as a pastor, as a Christian, as a dad, as a husband, when you look up and see the moon, whether it's, you know, full or covered with clouds or whatever, you know, what does it mean to you? Oh, man. Well, all of us are alike in that, you know, we love to, to moon gaze, to look at the stars. Who doesn't love just the beauty of lifting your eyes up? And, you know, I'm not, I'm, a, I'm like everybody else in that I have, I have problems and stresses and worries. And sometimes I'm concerned for the future. And, you know, sometimes what I love to do when I'm really worried like that is to go stand outside and, and look at God's, you know, majesty. And, and I think that God sort of intends for us to see the moon as a, a sign of his covenant. In fact, the Bible describes the moon as God's faithful witness that he's going to do what he said. And the moon is very consistent. It's always there. Whether you can see it or not, it's always there, and it's it's predictable. There are seasons to it. It it, it gets small, then it disappears, and it gets full and shows up. And, and so like that, God is faithful, and we can count on the rhythms of his, of his love and grace and mercy. And so I think I would just encourage everybody, you know, we, we tend to look down a lot, down at our cell phones, down at our computers, down at our, you know, the, our, our, whatever we're working on. But we, we should just sort of pause and be still and know that he's God and, and lift our eyes up and remember, hey, everybody who's come before us looked at that same moon. There's only ever been one moon. And uh, whatever problems Winston Churchill or Abraham Lincoln or George Washington or, you know, you know whoever, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., every, every problem that played out in their life played out under the moon, the same moon. And, and I think that, you know, in our lives we can remember God's going to be good in our lives as we trust him. And the Bible says that Jesus created everything we see in the night sky, right? That's exactly right. And to think about that, that Colossians says everything that, that was made was made by him and for him. And so God made Jesus, literally God through his son Jesus as the, as the, as the craftsman made this beautiful world for, for us to live in. It's broken, it's fallen, but through the blood of Jesus' cross, which, you know, Buzz's communion elements point to, we can have reconciliation. And God's going to restore all things to himself. We believe in a new heaven and a new earth and that death is not the end and there's hope. And I think the moon is just one, just one more reason for us to remember God's good. and He's up to something. And just like he's faithful to continue to keep the planet spinning around the sun, he's going to be faithful to us. And it sort of takes the pressure off, too, because, you know, the moon, it's bright and it's beautiful, but it doesn't have any light of its own. All the light comes from the sun. And so that's kind of like our job. At work and at school, even in hard, difficult assignments, we're meant to shine, but we don't have to come up with light because the light comes from God. And theologically, Jesus is Lord of the moon as well as the earth, and prayer works from any venue like the moon. If the astronaut's praying, he hears it, right? That's right. And, you know, when you look into the space race and all of the Apollo landings, there's actually a great story where on Apollo 15, uh, one of the astronauts, the whole time he was there, he said he, he never felt nearer to God. Uh, Jim Irwin is his name. He never felt nearer to God than on that mission, and he was praying throughout the mission. And in fact, he liked to quote Psalm 121 when he would look at the moon mountains, the lunar mountains. He would pray, you know, when I lift my eyes to the hills, 
uh, which we think about as earth hills, of course, which is what David meant. But I love that here in this moment, he was looking at the moon mountains and saying, I lift my eyes above the mountains to the one who made the heavens and made the earth. And uh, he said he just he felt like it was almost like God was with him there on the moon. And uh, this is speculative, but in talking about space, people often wonder, is there life elsewhere in the universe? Have you given any thought to that? Well, I don't know about that, but I I, I do know that um, it's it, it's it's within our hearts to explore, and I think God wants us to explore, and I think that the more we do, the more we understand, and, and the, the more it points to His glory. And I, I even love, right now, there's this beautiful new James Webb Space Telescope that's sitting there a million miles from our planet, and, uh, you know, according to CBS News and the, the, the program that I saw on it, they said that this telescope is likely going to even be able to see back to the, in their words, the let there be light moment. And so I think the more we discover, the more we have reason to believe in God and to see what he's done and, uh, and to know that it all brings glory to him day and to day. Uh, the creation gives glory to God. And it appears the United States is going back to the moon. Many other nations are making plans, too. So after 50 years, why do you think all the renewed interest in, in going there again? Well, the, the moon is important not as a destination unto itself, but as a springboard to what lies beyond it. And, you know, um, when they do put a lunar space station on the, on the moon, I understand it's going to be basically a pit stop. You know, here it is a quarter million miles away, but it's going to be able to be sort of a base of operations for further exploration to Mars and, and even beyond that. And so I, I even like that. The way I use it in the book is to say, you know, God doesn't just do work in our lives just to save us. Like he doesn't just want us to not go to hell, but it's a springboard so that he might do great works in us. And I just encourage everyone listening to know that the, the great work God's done in, in his, his son Jesus dying for you wasn't an end. It was a beginning. Just like the, the first thing on the eaten on the moon was the Lord's Supper. That's not an end. It's a beginning. And so, you know, the, the, the lunar space station or a lunar base, is, it's going to be a springboard beyond it just like God wants what he's done in your life to lead to greater things and that he always saves the best for the last. Something I saw recently, uh, the University of Arizona has been given a $7.5 million grant to study and plot space traffic issues between Earth and the moon. The, the idea, I guess, is to prevent cluttered space like what surrounds Earth right now with satellites and debris and so forth. So is it possible that different nations are going to maybe be thinking about claiming sections of the moon for their own territory? or Can we see something like that, maybe? It seems like uh, that's probably likely. Um, it's hard to imagine, you know, being that the, there's so much uh, real estate we're talking about between here and the, and the moon. But I, what I do think is cool is that there's been an agreement from the very beginning, you know, that the, the moon's going to always be designated as a, as a non-military thing. So it's like the plaque was put on Apollo 11. For, it's for peace for all mankind. And so I think that's, uh, that's, that's a really great thing. Some people, of course, have claimed for, really for years, that, well, it's a waste of money to go into space, another moon mission, a Mars mission. But in your book, you cite some of the amazing technology that has come from NASA projects. Could you mention, just mention a couple off the top of your head? Of course. Well, I got to talk to Charlie Duke, who walked on the moon in Apollo 16, and I asked him about that. I said, you know, hey, Charlie, a lot of people um, say that, you know, it's a waste of money to, to go to the moon. All the money was wasted on, on the moon. And he, he said, and I love this, he said, actually, Levi, not one dollar was ever spent on the moon. 
It was all spent on Earth. It all made jobs for people on Earth. Everybody who was involved in the manufacturing of the millions of pieces and parts of the Saturn V rockets, the Apollo spacecraft, they were all uh, given paychecks, and, and all of the, the money was spent in different congressional districts all across this country, Utah, California, New Jersey, et cetera. And so no money was spent on the moon. It was all spent here. It gave people work, right? And so that's one perspective. The other perspective is that doing something as, as revolutionary as going to the moon in 1969, which is when we went, it's unbelievable to think about that, um, it, it forced there to be creation of technology that didn't exist in order to do it. And incidentally, a lot of that technology found application on Earth. For example, a lot of people listening sleep on memory foam mattresses like I do. Well, memory foam mattresses, it was invented for to absorb the shock of reentry, landing, splashing down in the ocean. Uh, if your mom or dad ever has a pacemaker installed in their heart, that pacemaker, it was originally, even the defibrillators, uh, that originally was lunar technology uh, for astronauts to be kept safe in space. Um, then as, as well, uh, lightweight, lightweight aluminum, like, his, like, like in a walker, like a senior citizen might have, mm -hmm. that was you know, lunar technology. Dust buster vacuum cleaners, and the list goes on and on. Uh, many of these things, they, they were necessities, which is necessities the mother of, of invention for space. And we're like, oh, well, these actually can be helpful on Earth as well. Wow. So in closing here, what do you hope is the takeaway for people who read The Last Supper on the Moon? I think that Jesus looks at a lot of his church and he says, like C.S. Lewis has Aslan saying of the children at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, you are not yet so happy as I want you to be. I think the word blessing actually means, oh, how happy. And I think a lot of times we're living far short of the happiness God wants for us. And I, I think if we're honest, we look at the life we're living and the life we wish we were living, and it almost seems like a blessed life is out of reach like the moon is. And that, uh, which is to bridge the gap between here and there, is the cross. And so I want to help people listen to Jesus. That's, this book's not about space. It's about Jesus. I'm using space as a metaphor to point people to the one who actually uh, can bridge the gap from where we are today and where we're meant to be. Pastor Levi Lesko, thank you very much. Thank you, Richard, for having me.